Hello, everyone. I'm Genevieve. And I'm Caitlin. And thank you for joining us for our very first episode of Camping is Cancelled. The story we have for you today has us time-hopping back to the glorious 1980s, specifically the 80s of New York City, when Madonna was queen and preppy rich kids ruled from a bubble of privilege and platinum credit cards on the Upper East Side. However, the brutal Central Park murder of a young woman with her whole life ahead of her would shatter this bubble in one fateful night at the end of the summer, and would ultimately find not just a killer on trial, but the victim herself. So let's get into it. In the early morning of August 26, 1986, a 34-year-old Wall Street trader named Pat Riley got out of bed at 5.30 a.m., threw on some tennis shoes, and made her way down the stairs of her third-floor apartment in central Manhattan to begin her day with a bicycle ride. Pat was used to seeing little else on her morning route besides an occasional delivery truck, and she liked this about getting up before the city's rush hour began. But as Pat pedaled her way into Central Park on this particular morning, a chance encounter that she never could have anticipated was about to become the first moment in one of the city's most infamous murder trials of the decade. As Pat approached the base of Central Park's Panther Hill, a brown car with blacked-out windows appeared out of nowhere and sped past her heading the wrong way down a one-way street. Heart-pounding, Pat continued into the park, relieved to hear the unsavory vehicle fading away behind her. Just a few seconds later, something prompted Pat to take her eyes off of the path and look over her shoulder across the park's lawn. Less than a dozen yards away, beneath the cover of some low-hanging branches, Pat's stomach dropped at the sight of a young woman lying twisted and motionless in the dewy grass. One of the woman's arms was raised high above her head, and her left leg was bent at the knee and pointed straight out behind her. Both of the young woman's legs had multiple scratches and bruises. Her knees were dirty, and her skirt, bra, and shirt had been pushed far enough upwards that she was left completely exposed. Deep, dark bruises almost completely covered her throat, and a terrified Pat raced to find the nearest payphone and dial 911. As law enforcement arrived on the scene, they found that Pat, upon ending her 911 call, had returned to the park by herself to wait for help by the deceased young woman. Now, we're going to take a moment here to say that we know the finding of a body by an unassuming person is an extremely common beginning to so many of these stories, but what doesn't happen as often is the person finding a body, running to call for help, then returning to that scene alone, even though they have no idea how the deceased person came to be there and no idea if they themselves could be in danger. And we think it's worth noting here because in our opinion, the world needs more people like Pat. By this time, curious media pressing in as close as law enforcement would allow, and park visitors were being redirected around the widening crime scene. Reports of the speeding brown car and the presence of fresh tire tracks in the general area of the young woman's body led investigators to assume that this victim was most likely abducted by a stranger, then dumped at the location where she was found. And this wouldn't be a reach to consider because in the 1980s, the violent crime rate in New York City was at a staggering all-time high, with an estimated 1,500 homicides in 1986 alone, and according to Manhattan's Assistant District Attorney Linda Farstein, quote, no woman would willingly enter Central Park at night. Within minutes, the New York PD had organized the shutdown of every entrance, exit, bridge, and tunnel that entered New York City in the hopes that just maybe they would be able to catch a killer. An ID found in a denim jacket on the ground next to the young woman's body identified her as 18-year-old Jennifer Levin, a recent high school graduate who was working as a hostess at South Street Seaport Bar and had been just one week away from beginning her freshman year at Chamberlain Junior College in Boston, Massachusetts. The medical examiner's findings left no doubt that Jennifer's 5'4", 115-pound body had been brutalized in a violent attack. Heavy bruising and scratches were all over her body, and multiple lines of what her autopsy referred to as strangulation wounds stretched horizontally across the entire surface of her neck, from right below her chin all the way down to the base of her throat. Distinct tan lines on her wrists, fingers, and marks on her ears indicated that her jewelry was missing and had possibly been removed by her attacker. Her fingernails were bruised and dirty, and it was immediately apparent to detectives at the scene that 
the young woman had been struck in the head with such force that her teeth had been knocked loose, and her left eye was protruding out of the socket. Wounds inflicted by what the medical examiner speculated were most likely caused by a blunt instrument or a human fist. Most notably, Jennifer Levin's face had very distinct markings in the shape of crescent moons, embedded deep into her skin in the area between the top of her upper lip and the base of her nose. These marks were determined to be from Jennifer's own fingernails, as though she had been using all of her strength to pull down whatever was being used to strangle her. Jennifer's time of death was estimated to be around 5.30 a.m., mere minutes before an unassuming Pat Riley would happen upon her. Jennifer Dawn Levin was born in Merrick, New York on May 21, 1968, to her parents Stephen and Ellen. According to her mother Ellen, Jennifer was a happy baby who enjoyed life, and in an interview for AMC's documentary The Preppy Murder, Death in Central Park, Ellen shared that as soon as Jennifer could pull herself up in her crib, she would stand in it and bang its side against the wall in tune with her parents' favorite Beatles songs. Jennifer's older sister, Danielle, adored her baby sister and felt very protective of her, and Jennifer's family loved her bubbly, full-of-life spirit. When Jennifer was in grade school, her parents separated and eventually divorced, and this was the major transition for their family. Stephen Levin remarried and ran a successful real estate company in the city, and when Jennifer was around 14 years old, she decided to leave her childhood home on Long Island to live with him and her stepmother Arlene in their Soho loft apartment. And it wasn't long before Jennifer's mother and sister also decided to move into the city so they could all be within walking distance of each other. Jennifer loved the energy of the city, and it was the perfect place for her confidence and independence to thrive. She attended Baldwin School on West 74th Street in Manhattan, a small and expensive private high school that was part of New York City's preppy scene, where she quickly established herself among her peers as friendly, witty, and self-described street smart, not book smart, same. Jennifer was even voted best looking in her class at Baldwin School, and it's undeniable that with her olive skin and dark brown eyes, she was absolutely stunning. Comments from Jennifer's friends from around this time in her life hinted that, like many teenagers, she didn't always have the smoothest relationship with her father and stepmother. Their arguments would be over classic teenage parent conflicts, like getting home late, cleaning her room, and straightening out her priorities. Her friends also thought Jennifer never felt fully comfortable living with her father and stepmother, that she didn't like being left alone at their loft, and she felt at times like she was intruding in her father's life. She would leave notes around the apartment saying that she was sorry and would try to be better. But as quickly as these conflicts would boil up, after a day or so, things would cool off and everything would go back to normal again. In researching this case, some articles seem to try and use Jennifer's slightly tumultuous relationship with her father and stepmother as an indication that Jennifer was troubled and that this pushed her deep into the party scene associated with her private school peers in the gilded latchkey crowd. In the 1980s, this term gilded latchkey kids, or preppy kids, was used to refer to the children of families who enjoyed the privileges of immense generational wealth on the Upper East Side. Most of them didn't even know what their parents did for a living, and if anyone cared to ask, they probably weren't part of that world. These young people went about completely cocooned in lives of privilege, attending fancy prep schools during the week, then throwing wild house parties and clubbing on the weekends, with absolutely no accountability, and all made possible by their parents' credit cards. In middle school, they were already experimenting with drugs and alcohol. And by high school, it wasn't unusual to have a classmate out for a few weeks because they were doing a stint in rehab for cocaine addiction. And speaking of parents, these kids' parents were far more likely to be off at the Hamptons attending their own glamorous parties when their children arrived home from school than setting the table for a family dinner. Hence the term gilded latchkey. With this lack of supervision and access to wealth, it's no wonder that these preppy kids did exactly what everyone expected them to do. Spend money, experiment with drugs and alcohol, and hook up. On the outside, their carefree lifestyle made these preppy kids appear untouchable, and so far, no one was telling them anything different. But... Even though Jennifer did attend school and socialize in this world, it doesn't seem fair or accurate to assign this gilded latchkey stereotype to her. The Levin family was not one of tremendous wealth or influence, and the underdeveloped area of Soho where she lived was a world removed from the million-dollar Upper East Side brownstones of her classmates. 
With this in mind, we don't think it's a reach to say that while their relationship certainly wasn't perfect, the conflicts between Jennifer and her father could be seen as less of a red flag that she was troubled, and more so an indication that she had parents who cared enough to be concerned about her life. While attending Baldwin School, Jennifer got a job at the upscale clothing store French Connection, and it was here that she became close friends with Upper East Side kids Jessica Doyle and Peter Davis. According to Jessica and Peter, it was exactly Jennifer's lack of pretension and having grown up outside of their privileged bubble that drew the preppy kids to her. They thought she was cool because she wasn't from their world, and she thought they were cool because they weren't from hers. Peter said that Jennifer actually was kind of a nerd. He said she was much more responsible than most of them were. She was funny, loyal, and down to earth. He said Jennifer was the type of friend who was always there for her friends. She had a lot of friends, but she still always found a way to make her friends feel special. She was always there for everyone. She was also very self-deprecating about herself and wasn't afraid to poke fun at herself. She never did drugs or even drank that much. She was just a very regular person. Her mother, Ellen, even said that Jennifer was happy, doing well in school, and was very popular and had a great group of friends. According to her sister, Danielle, Jennifer could tune into people really well, and that she paid attention to them, so they would often come to her for advice and support. On the night of August 25th, a small bar on 2nd Avenue called Dorian's Red Hand had its checkered tables crowded with young people enjoying their last week of summer vacation. Dorian's worst kept secret was that it was known for catering to the Upper East Side underage crowd. They liked that rep they liked that rich preppy kids would come there to spend money, and young people liked that Dorian's made no secret about being incredibly lax with IDs. Free Snapchat and texting, it was the perfect central location for prep school kids to meet up, have a few drinks, and see who was doing what before splitting off to continue the evening. Their connections made these young people feel safe wherever they went, so it wasn't unusual for someone to head off with a different person or group than they came with because everyone would turn back up in some places eventually. And even though her friends considered Dorian's more of a first stop on a night out than a place to linger for hours, Jennifer loved it and would happily spend the entire evening there sharing a basket of fries with her friends and flirting with boys. On this particular night, though, Jennifer did leave Dorian's with someone, but she never turned up where she was supposed to. That following morning would have detectives knocking on Stephen Levin's door with tragic news. Her devastated father hadn't even considered that Jennifer wasn't in her bed when they got up that morning because Jennifer had told them she was going to stay the night with her friend Alex Legata on the Upper East Side. Alex Legata's interview with police was the first major puzzle piece investigators needed to build a timeline of Jennifer's movements in the hours before her death. They found out that multiple people had seen and spoken with Jennifer the night before at Dorian's. They said she was her typical friendly and confident self, and maybe had a drink or two but was not noticeably drunk. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Dorian's was packed with its usual preppy crowd, and everyone was having a great time during their last week of summer vacation. And just like any other night, the Dorian's crowd eventually began splitting off, and statements about who had actually been the last person to see or speak to Jennifer became unclear. Even her friend Alex had left before Jen with a boy that she liked. However, one person's name kept coming up enough that investigators thought he may be able to give them some more useful information, and that person was Jennifer's friend, fellow preppy kid, and Dorian's regular, Robert Chambers. Jennifer and Robert met on Valentine's Day, 1986, at a sweet 16 champagne birthday party for their mutual friend, <laughs> Carla. <laughs> Nothing says sweet 16 like champagne. Yeah. I don't even think I knew what champagne was when I was 16, other than they drank it in the sound of music a couple of times. It was like a New Year's thing for me. Oh, I mean, like, yeah. I grew up on... Like, not on. <laughs> Around Caitlin beer. grew up on champagne. <laughs> that explains a lot about her. <laughs> but a sweet 16 champagne. Definitely not the lifestyle. Yeah, that's I'm definitely a rich people thing. Um, not a Clinton County thing, at least not me. And can you also imagine saying, hey, mom, I'm going to turn 16 this weekend. Can you run down and get a case of champagne for make my sure, birthday mom, party? Make sure you order the... The kegs, the cake, not even kegs because it's not even beer. No, that what you mean, caviar. That's the word you're thinking caviar. of. Caviar. Mm. Yes. <clears throat> As any 16 year old should know. So at this week's 16, Champagne birthday party was where Jennifer and Robert met for the first time. 
Jennifer had noticed Robert at Dorian's, thought he was cute, and asked her friend Jessica if she could introduce them. Jessica knew Robert because he lived directly across the street from the day school that Jessica attended, and his house had been a regular after-school hangout for Jessica and their mutual friends for years. After Jessica introduced Jennifer and Robert at the party, everyone's senior year of high school continued on as normal. There were the usual parties and hangouts, but the next time Jessica remembered Robert Chambers coming up in a conversation with Jennifer was around June of that same year, when Jennifer shared with Jessica that she and Robert had seen each other around four or five times, that they'd had a really nice time each time, and that she really liked him. Jessica took that to mean that Jennifer and Robert were mutually enjoying each other's company, and that they were most likely sexually active. Right after they spoke, Jessica went out of town for the summer, and as soon as she got home, she called Jennifer to catch up on everything she'd missed while she was away. Jennifer shared that she and Robert had continued to see each other all summer, and that they'd kept on having a really nice time. It would be just 10 days later that Jessica would receive a phone call from her mother and be given the terrible news that her best friend Jennifer had been killed. At this point, the overwhelming assumption was that Jennifer had been the victim of a violent abduction followed by her body being dumped in Central Park, and the likelihood of finding her killer was incredibly remote. Desperate for any helpful information, law enforcement's only reason for speaking with Robert Chambers was because he was Jennifer's friend and had likely been one of the last people to see her alive. Robert's mother, Phyllis Chambers, was surprised to see two detectives standing at her front door on East 90th Street on a Monday morning but she graciously invited them in and said her son Robert was sleeping, but that they were welcome to speak with him. When Robert Chambers emerged from his bedroom to greet detectives, he immediately went from a helpful friend of Jennifer Levin to law enforcement's number one person of interest. The six foot four, 220 pound, 19 year old's face was covered in vicious, fresh scratches. And as he reached out his hand to shake the detectives, they noticed right away bruising and swelling from an impact fracture on Robert's fifth metacarpal. For us lay people, that's the knuckle on the back of the hand connected to the pinky finger that sticks out when you make a fist, and what's also referred to as a classic boxer's injury. When Robert asked what the detectives needed from him, they asked if he would mind coming down to the precinct just as a favor to help them out. Robert agreed without hesitation, grabbed his Philofax, containing the numbers and addresses of he and Jennifer's mutual friends, and headed out with detectives. Two things. This is why I could never be a detective because picture you and I as the detectives going into this situation. The second that that bitch came out of his mm -hmm. room covered in scratches with a broken hand, right. I would have mm. been jumping through the ceiling and pulling out the handcuffs <laughs> oh, to slap on, but... They can't do that. Uh, they know. would have had to remain perfectly calm and just been like, oh, hey, buddy, like, oh, yeah, get your, chat. yeah, can you come and help us out? Thanks, bro. That'd be so great. Thank we'll get you. coffee on the way down. So then he grabs his Philofax. Because I didn't know what a Philofax was. Neither, neither did I. And uh, when I was researching all of the things I had to for this case, Philofax was one of them. And... <laughs> For anyone that's also dumb, uh, a Filofax is basically just what you had if you didn't have a smartphone in the 1980s. So it's just a little three-ring binder book that has like names and addresses. And it was also kind of like what you used to show people you were cool. So like if you had a like a fat Philofax, like P-H-A-T fat that was full of names and addresses. It was like, oh, this person like knows a lot of people and has a lot of friends. So like they're cool. So Robert's like, yeah, I'm cool. Yeah, Let me grab my, my Philofax. My Philofax is so thick. And he's being so helpful. So, oh, you know, such like a kind guy. that's just, so nice of him. Just wait until you see how kind he gets. <clears throat> oh yeah, it just keeps getting better. <laughs> So, footage from Robert Chambers' videotape statement when he arrived at the station with his Philofax shows the mood in the room visibly shift over two hours of questioning, from relaxed and casual to increasingly tense as law enforcement kept bringing the conversation back to ask Robert to please go over, just one more time, his interaction with Jennifer Levin at Dorian's the previous evening. 
So far, Robert maintained that he'd run into Jennifer at Dorian's, began talking with her, and eventually they'd stepped outside to continue their conversation about college and upcoming life changes. He said he didn't remember feeling drunk or high, they'd said goodnight to each other and walked opposite ways, and he'd never seen her again. But Detective Sheehan and Assistant District Attorney Stephen Sirocco weren't buying any of it especially after when they asked Robert Chambers how he came to have such nasty scratches on his face. He said he had been throwing his cat up in the air. But he didn't stop there. Robert then said, you think that's bad? Get a load of this, and lifted up his white polo Izod shirt to reveal those same fresh scratch marks stretching from his upper left shoulder all the way down to his stomach. From his cat. Uh, I mean, throwing my cat up in the air sounds like some, like, is slang it? for something. Because who the <laughs> fuck throws your cat in the air? Um, I think that's something you learn not to do when you're, like, three years old. Because a cat is not a baby. If you want to have a face, you oh. don't really do anything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you, any common sense oriented person knows you don't do anything to a cat unless that cat gives you its consent. And a cat has never consented in the history of the world to being thrown up in the air and caught like a baby. He should have been arrested for some sort of crime just for saying that. Yeah. I mean, spoiler alert, it was a lie. Yeah. But that was his explanation for the horrible scratches all over his face and body. And I guess the detectives are doing some pretty good detectoring right now because they're just kind of letting him talk. Yeah, yeah, show us what you got under that shirt. Yes. Do you have anything else? And since he loves to hear the sound of his own voice, he just continues uh, to spill the tea. And at this point, Detective Sheehan asked Robert Chambers, now... Just one more time, walk me through what happened. And after two whole hours of Robert insisting that he and Jennifer Levin said their goodbyes and went opposite ways outside of Dorian's, the young man, visibly annoyed at this point, leaned forward and said to the detective, pay attention. We went outside and we walked up 86th Street. And as any New Yorker knows, this one in the same 86th Street heads directly into Central Park. With Robert now admitting that he didn't say goodbye to Jennifer that night outside of Dorian's, a very different version of that night's events began to emerge. And Robert Chambers maintains the following version of events to this day. In his statement, Robert said that he was supposed to meet a girl the previous night at Dorian's named Alex Cap at 10.30 p.m. And I do want to mention here that this is a different Alex than the Alex that Jennifer was staying the night with, Alex Legata. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Alex Cap, just in case there's some confusion there. So he was supposed to meet Alex Cap at 10.30 p.m., but he'd gotten there late around 11.30, and Jennifer was already there. He said that Jennifer was all over him, and he claimed she told her friends that she was definitely going to fuck him that night. He said he didn't want to go anywhere with Jennifer, and even his friends knew that he was there to see other people. But she was pushy, and somehow he found himself leaving Dorian's with her, and at her suggestion, they eventually wound up in Central Park. Jennifer stepped away to pee in some bushes, and when she returned, she was holding her underwear in her hand, and told Robert that he was cute, but would look even better if he were tied up. Apparently, according to Robert Chambers, Jennifer then used her own underwear to tie Robert's hands behind his back while he was sitting on the grass. And in Robert's exact words, trigger warning coming up as mention of sexual assault, just in case that's not something you want to hear, skip ahead uh, 30 seconds. In Robert's exact words, quote, she started to play with me. She started jerking me off. And you know, I started to say, stop it. Stop it. It hurts. And then I just grabbed her and yanked her as hard as I could. And then she just flipped over me and landed right next to the tree. And then she didn't move. Quote, when asked if he could demonstrate what happened, Robert stood up and leaned back across the precinct desk with both of his hands held behind his lower back. He said 
He had been laying in that very position, on his back with his hands tied behind him, his legs sticking straight out, and unable to move as Jennifer sat on top of him, facing away and assaulting him. He said he'd managed to get his left hand free, wrap just that one now free arm around her body, and with his other hand still stuck behind him, flip Jennifer Levin backwards and over his right shoulder towards the ground where she landed on her back next to the tree. When you watch the video of his confession and he's demonstrating to police what is happening, it's almost like he realizes midway through explaining that he was able to get one hand free. Mm -hmm. His other hand just kind of naturally starts to also pull out from behind his back and there's a moment where he almost realizes that that's what's happening and he has to kind of hold it consciously hold it back down by his side because if that situation did happen then he would have had both hands free and he would not have been limited to just one hand. I also find it very very difficult to believe that and it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that he is even a man and she is a woman and it has everything to do with the fact that he was six foot four and 220 pounds and she was five foot and a couple of inches and 115 pounds soaking wet. If the roles were reversed and she had been the size of Robert Chambers and he had been her size, I would be saying the exact same thing, but somebody that is that much taller and bigger is going to be stronger than the other person. And when they unless they are incredibly inebriated or ill, which Robert Chambers was not. Right. Um, he, you know, he was yeah, he a... he claimed he was not. Right, he claimed he was not. He was also a varsity athlete. I mean, if you look at pictures of him, he was in good physical shape. There mm-hmm. is no way that Jennifer Levin subdued him and assaulted him to the point where the only way he could escape that situation was to kill her. That did not happen. I mean, even if, like, again, if this were the case, he did. Th- how are her teeth knocked out? Mm. How is her eye bulging mm. from the socket? How does she, the pictures, the her, autopsy pictures oh, of yes. her neck? Her throat is absolutely brutalized. That does not happen from one swift motion of get off of me. No. That absolutely does not happen. And as we get further into the case, we'll be seeing from a forensic standpoint how that was physically impossible. And for him to be saying the things that he was saying while Jennifer's autopsy photos of her neck Mm. were on the table between him and the detectives, the audacity of this bitch to say what he was saying and just expect that they would believe him is... It wasn't even a good lie. No, it it, like... Yeah, at least come up with a plausible excuse like, but I digress. He then stood up and said, Jennifer, let's go. Let's get out of here now. But she didn't respond. So he thought she must have just been kidding around. Then Robert Chambers said, So I went over and I shook the body and there was nothing happening. No response. At this point in his story, Detective Sheehan and Assistant DA Stephen Sirocco stopped Robert and asked him how he knew Jennifer was already a body. To which Robert reiterated that he had no idea she was dead and thought she was just kidding around and that it was only when he had shaken her and she still didn't move that he left her in the grass, crossed to the other side of the street, sat down on a bench, and stared. He never attempted CPR or to assist her in any way. He never called for help and he remained sitting on his fucking ass on that bench and staring at the scene even once the ambulance and law enforcement arrived. That is not normal. Even if you are in shock and you don't know your butt from a hole in the ground, Mm -hmm. to do absolutely nothing when you are aware that your friend, I mean, and this is not a stranger. This is somebody that you know that you've had a relationship with, whether or not you particularly like them. If you really didn't mean to hurt them and you realize that they are unresponsive, that is when you freak out. You have some sort of reaction. Yeah, you start running around in circles, you start yelling for help, you attempt to perform CPR. 
No, instead he walks over, sits, watches as a random person finds her body. And she calls the cops. And she is the one that returned to Jennifer's body to comfort. Like, I know she's not alive, but she sat there to comfort this poor girl's body, her remains, while the killer sat across the fucking way and stared. What it also says to me, even let's just say that he isn't a psychopath or like sadistic or anything like that. It speaks to someone's incredible immaturity Mm -hmm. and somebody that has grown up in a world where every single time they've made a mistake or a mess, it's been cleaned up for them and they've had to sit back and do nothing. And that almost is how this situation reads to me as well, is that he realized oh shit, I really did something bad. But instead of assuming responsibility for it, it as a grown-ass adult, which he is this point at 19, you are illegal. Well, you can do cocaine. You can do drugs. Right. Like, you can, you drink, can go. You, you can go die for your country. You can consent to pretty much anything at that point. But you still can't assume responsibility and are waiting for someone else to come along and clean up your mess. And that, to me, is probably what was going through his mind was, I just don't want to deal with this. And and see, to me, like, I think he's he's sitting over there and he's like, oh, woe is me. My oh, role yeah. is ruined now. Oh, like, yeah. I'm going to get in trouble. Oh, yeah. Feeling sorry like, for himself. Yes, he yeah. only, he's only thinking about himself. That's... Yeah. Blech. Yep, I have no doubt that you are correct. So fortunately, we weren't the only ones who found Robert Chambers' story to be more than a little sus. And an outraged Chambers was charged with second-degree murder and arrested on the spot. Two weeks later, Chambers was indicted by the grand jury on two distinct counts of second-degree murder, one for murder with intent to kill, and a second for murder as a result of an act that showed a depraved indifference to human life. Law enforcement was certain this would be an open and shut case, but the media firestorm waiting quite literally outside the doors of the NYPD would make it anything but. Two young, attractive, and rich white kids hooking up in Central Park after a night of underage drinking, with one of them turning up dead? This was Christmas for tabloid journalism, and all too eager to capitalize on this attention was Robert Chambers' own lawyer, Jack Littman, one of the New York's most preeminent and ruthless criminal defense attorneys. Also looks like he worked at Green God's Bank. In the weeks leading up to Chambers' bail hearing, Littman wasted no time telling anyone who would listen that his client would be pleading not guilty to the charges of murder, and his defense would make the case that the killing of Jennifer Levin was entirely an unfortunate accident, a tragedy that resulted from two wealthy and attractive young people engaging in rough sex. According to Littman, Robert Chambers was a very good-natured, well-liked, non-aggressive, non-violent young man who was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time when, in Littman's words, quote, there seemed to be some advances in sexual activity by Jennifer Levin, and that led to this tragedy. Unquote. My quote? Fuck you. By (laughs) Jennifer Levin, there were sexual advances, and that led to this tragedy. So he is literally saying, because Jennifer Levin wanted sex, she wound up dead. So sucks to suck. No. That is literally what this means. And I refuse to accept that it meant anything different. I just don't know how somebody could have the composure to sit and listen to the bullshit that is spewing out of this man's mouth. I can't even imagine how her family Mm. managed to maintain their composure Mm. throughout this entire process because as we go on to see it just the shenanigans just continue to escalate and yeah Littman said chambers could easily be someone that we all know given the right circumstances an altar boy an athlete a well-polished and good-natured prep school student and the killing that occurred was completely out of character pictures of the young man looking like a hollywood movie star were plastered all over the front of newspapers and magazines the sound bites on tv news from young women who said that they just couldn't believe someone as good looking as robert chambers could possibly be a cold-blooded murderer both the media and the public were obsessed with this case because this type of thing just wasn't supposed to happen to white rich kids I mean, it's not supposed to happen to anybody, but... Right, but especially white rich kids, because that's really all we care about. 
But as it so often goes, it didn't take long for the golden boy veneer of Robert Chambers to crumble as Detective Sheehan and Manhattan Assistant DA Linda Farstein worked tirelessly to dig into his past. Robert Chambers Jr. was born in New York City, New York on September 25, 1966. His mother, Phyllis, immigrated from Ireland to New York in the late 1950s. She married Robert Chambers Sr. in 1965, and they had Robert one year later. Robert Sr. worked for a record company, and Phyllis made a career of working as a trusted private nurse for incredibly prominent families such as the Hursts and the Kennedys. Also, sidebar, I had no idea who the Hursts were, and I had to look that up. And yeah, I don't know. Apparently, the Hursts are a super famous, like, Broadway musical theater influential family uh-huh. that are, like, billionaires. And, yeah, so I guess that's why they're super famous. And the Kennedys are, mean- <laughs> are, are the Kennedys. Um, after seeing firsthand how the other half lived, Robert's mother, Phyllis, was determined to use her connections as a nurse to give her son every opportunity that growing up in the world of the 1% would allow. And she did place an immense amount of pressure on Robert to use the circle she placed him in to make something of himself. He attended fancy prep schools, he was an altar boy, he did sports, and he participated in exclusive after-school clubs for well-positioned New York families. Um, apparently one of these clubs was called the Knickerbocker Grays, uh, (laughs) which was apparently in the research I was doing, that is the oldest after-school program in the United States. Like it was established when Teddy, yeah, well, Teddy Roosevelt. So yeah, same difference. When, when (laughs) Teddy, (laughs) it was was established like when Teddy Roosevelt was president and it's like a quote unquote leadership club, which is basically just like, they drank scotch. Yes. They they made 10 year olds drink scotch and parade around and do like fancy cadet drills and shit. Yes. And, um, only and for boys. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. Uh, of course, only for boys. Obviously. Yeah, it's literally like a pathway into the old boys club. I think there's yeah. a quote about it somewhere that I, I found. Probably like a chant. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, right here. I actually <laughs> put it in. It says, uh, a New York Times article um, on the Grays from 1979 literally called the Knickerbocker Grays a tunnel into the old boy network. So that tells us pretty much all we need to know. Um, mm, and don't like it. No. And while their family certainly were not millionaires, the Chambers made sure Robert was fully enmeshed socially and academically in the world of privilege. And his unusually good looks and his charismatic presence made him popular among his peers. Robert's parents separated when he was around 15, and Robert lived in the city with his mother, where she worked tirelessly as a private nurse to afford Robert's tuition fees. Altogether, Robert Chambers attended four prestigious private schools, St. David's, Choate, the Browning School, and York Prep, which sounds impressive on paper, until it turned up that Robert was expelled from Choate, kicked out of the Browning School for stealing a teacher's wallet, and finally wound up at York Prep in the 10th grade. His grades were abysmal, and his previous two expulsions did very little to motivate him to clean up his act or take his grades seriously. In a particularly telling letter from York's headmaster to Robert's mother in 1983 read, Robert does not do his work, nor does he deal realistically with his situation. There is a possibility, therefore, that he will not graduate with his class. Now, since just being a poor student and a wallet thief is not exactly a pipeline to committing murder, Detective Sheehan and Linda Farstein knew they would have to keep digging. But luckily for them, the Philofax, Robert, ah, yes, the, the, the Philofax, Robert had brought along with him to the police station held the contact information of pretty much everyone Robert knew. But at first, his friends weren't very forthcoming. They all said Rob was such a nice guy and they could never imagine him actually killing anyone. One of Robert's old classmates was initially so defensive of him that a frustrated Linda Farstein actually took the photograph of Jennifer's battered throat from her autopsy, slammed it down in front of this friend, and said, does this look like an accident? This must have done something, because finally, the stories about Robert Chambers started coming in. And so the tea begins. Bring on the tea. 
As we've mentioned before, being in the Upper East Side world meant parties. And parties meant everyone was doing expensive drugs like they grew on trees. See what I did there? So even though it's often glamorized on TV and films as a fun party drug, cocaine is no fucking joke. And just like any other drug that releases manufactured dopamine into the brain, with repeated use, brain receptors will become desensitized to its effects, which requires the user to take more frequent and higher doses of the same drug to get that initial high and relieve withdrawal symptoms. With such a short high window, means you're likely going to have to hit it more than once an hour to maintain that high. And in the 1980s, just a single gram of high-end cocaine would set you back around $600. Which goes without saying that this would be an incredibly expensive habit to maintain. If you had daddy's Fortune 500 money to spend, this probably wouldn't be an issue. But Robert Chambers certainly did not. Or did he? Jennifer's friend, Jessica Doyle, recalled that around 10th grade, it became known among their friend group that whenever someone would throw a huge house party while their parents were away, Robert Chambers and two of his friends would slip into their parents' bedrooms and help themselves to fur coats, pearl necklaces, and jewelry. And even though all of his friends knew he was doing this, it seems he was never actually confronted about it because they were all having a great time and in her words, it was the glorious 80s. No one wanted to be responsible. So by this point, Robert was feeling pretty invincible. He'd been helping himself to valuables that clearly weren't missed enough for anyone to care, and he had plenty of cash to fuel his coke habit. So he decided to go one step further and go on a massive shopping spree with a stolen credit card. Thanks again to his handy-dandy Filofax, Linda Farsing was able to track down the mother of the girl who had her credit card stolen. And this mother said that Robert had met her daughter at a party and asked her out on a date. And at first, she had been very impressed with the good looks and charm of the young man who showed up to take her daughter out. But the next day, she received a call from American Express saying that her daughter's car may have been stolen because over $3,000 had been charged on it in a single day by a six foot four young man, black hair. Apparently, Robert had called a friend of his, Ralph Destino Jr., and they had rented a limousine. <laughs> so they rented a limousine and had a fabulous day charging thousands of dollars in clothing, electronics, and sports gear on the car that they had stolen, which would be the equivalent of almost $11,000 today. Holy shit. Cha-ching. Anywho, we're not condoning that. <laughs> but yeah. don't steal a credit card. When the girl's mother called Phyllis Chambers and said Robert had stolen her daughter's credit card, Miss Chambers apologized profusely and explained that Robert had a drug problem and that was why he had stolen the card. She begged the family not to press charges and in exchange, the Chambers would put Robert on a plane the very next day to complete a six-month drug rehab program at Hazelden Addiction Treatment Center in Minnesota. The stolen money was in fact reimbursed by none other than Ralph Destino Sr., the father of Robert's shopaholic buddy, and none other than the president of Car Cartier. Cartier. Fuck me. <laughs> That's okay. The father of Robert's shopaholic buddy, and none other than the president of Cartier. <laughs> <laughs> Caitlin, your redneck is showing. <laughs> the president of Cartier. <laughs> the president of Cartier? Yes. What the fuck is that? <laughs> Well, I'm finishing the sentence. Okay, no. one of the most prestigious luxury watch and jewelry manufacturers in the world. I never have, nor will I own anything from Cartier, but <laughs> Cartier, if you ever pick up like a Vogue or an InStyle magazine or any of those like fancy fashion magazines and you're flipping through and there's like a picture of some like incredibly sexy person like butt naked with just a watch on or like uh -huh. some fancy jewelry it's probably cartier good to know unsurprisingly robert would not complete the drug rehab program that was supposed to last from april through september of 1986 and just three months into the program he dropped out flew back to the city and showed up at the doorstep of his girlfriend of that summer 16-year-old Alex Cap. He told Alex he had been visiting his aunt in Boston and asked if he could go lay down for a bit in her room. After several hours, Alex went up to check on Robert and found that he had sweat completely through her entire bedding set all the way down into the mattress. He appeared shaky and woozy, but said he thought he just had the flu. Alex's mother was immediately suspicious and cautioned Alex that something was up with Chambers. But Alex just wasn't ready to believe the worst of the handsome older boyfriend whom she was so in love with. No. No. Get your nasty ass off my bed. 
So he was in, what's the word? Withdrawal. Withdrawal from cocaine use and was sweating it out in her bed. Gross. If that is my daughter, I am hauling his ass out of that bed and demanding that he leave immediately. That's when you pull out the I don't care if you like me or not card. And somebody did do that. And that person was Robert Chambers' mother, Phyllis. At this point, Robert's mother, Phyllis, was completely out of patience with Robert. She was absolutely furious when Robert quit rehab, rightly so, and told him that he could no longer live in her house. So Robert had moved into a basement apartment in exchange for helping the super paint buildings. And if this had been all he was doing, then okay, Robert Chambers. It might have looked like he was trying to take some responsibility for his life, but... No. Unfortunately, he immediately fell right back into partying with the Upper East Side crowd and heavy cocaine abuse. And it's worth noting here that among the many health adverse side effects from cocaine use, it is clinically proven that some of the more frightening psychological side effects from even short-term use of this drug are increased anxiety, paranoia, mood swings, and potentially erratic to violent behaviors. So, We think it's safe to say that at this point, things weren't going great for Team Rob. Robert had barely made it through one semester at Boston University before he was kicked out. He'd been caught with a stolen credit card. He'd dropped out of rehab. He'd lied about it. And his mother had thrown him out of their apartment. His formerly care and consequence-free preppy life was unraveling in a rapid fashion, and it would all come to a head around midnight on August 26th in a humiliating encounter at Dorian's that he would conveniently forget to mention as he gave his version of that evening's events later to Detective Sheehan. Robert Chambers' girlfriend, Alex Cap, the one whose bed he was sweating out cocaine in, Alex recalled, that the previous day on August 25th, her parents had left for the week, and instead of going over to her friend's house like she had told her parents, she invited Robert to come over and spend the night with her. But oddly, around three in the morning, Robert surprised Alex when he abruptly got up and said he needed to get back, and could he borrow some money from Alex to grab a cab? Alex had a $5 bill and a $50 bill in her wallet, and she told Robert, sure, He could take the five, but the 50 was all the spending money her mom had given her for that week. After Robert left, a gnawing feeling in Alex's gut prompted her to check her wallet. And when she did, she found it completely empty. Her stomach sank as the reality that this person really may not be who she thought he was. She waited just a few minutes before calling Robert to ask him about it, but he just brushed it off and said he hadn't taken anything. Hmm. Feeling scared, angry, and betrayed, Alex decided to confront Robert that very next night about her stolen money and his lying to her about it. So she asked him if they could meet at 8 p.m. to talk at Dorian's Red Hand, and Robert agreed. Unsurprisingly, Robert was nowhere to be seen at the time they'd agreed to, and Alex grew increasingly frustrated with each passing hour. While she was waiting, a girl whom Alex didn't know came up to her, untied a macrame bracelet from around her wrist, handed it to Alex and said, Hi, I'm Jen. We should totally be friends. This is my friendship bracelet to you. Alex recalled that the girl was kind of laughing a little, And she remembers feeling that the interaction was just odd because she didn't know this person and she kind of felt like she was being laughed at. So I want to take a minute and put out there while I think this random interaction between Alex Cap and Jennifer Levin, that was the Jen, um, that gave Alex this bracelet is important. Because if you remember, at this point, we know that Jennifer had shared on two separate occasions with her friend Jessica Doyle that she had been seeing Robert Chambers throughout that summer. And they had been, you know, dating and hooking up and, you know, liking each other and Mm -hmm. things like that. But at the same time that that was going on, Alex Cap was of the understanding that she was in a relationship with Robert Chambers and that he was her boyfriend. And I think that that's important to point out here because this would have been a time when I feel like you know, because there wasn't Facebook and like all of that shit that Robert Chambers 
because he was not an honest person, because he was a player and was, you know, clearly didn't care about hurting people, stealing credit cards, all of that stuff. It is not outside of the realm of reason at all to say that he was, you know, playing the field at the same time he was dating Alex, he was seeing Jennifer Levin, and we don't know what the status of either of their relationships were like. I mean, they could have had an open relationship. Mm-hmm. They could have been unofficial and just being like, we are hooking up. There could and have ha- been a misunderstanding right. between the two. We are hooking up and having fun. But it is odd that he has had an, a prolonged intimate relationship with both of these young women. Mm-hmm. And they clearly did not know. And it almost seems like maybe Jennifer knew who Alex mm-hmm. was. And we never understand what the full context of that interaction was, but it's definitely weird and it's worth mentioning because I think it speaks more to the character of Robert Mm -hmm. than anyone else, that he was able to exist in that same world while conducting these two totally separate relationships with both of these young women. Finally, around 11 p.m., so three hours after he told Alex Cap that he was going to meet her and talk to her, Robert did show up at Dorian's. He made eye contact with Alex and walked right past her to the bar. What a dick. Oh my god. And utterly incensed, Alex marched up to Robert Chambers, pulled a handful of condoms out of her purse, and flung them in Robert's face in full view of all their friends. Apparently, she yelled that he could keep those condoms to use with some other girl because it wasn't going to be her. Good for you, Alex. But as you can imagine, this did not go over well with Robert. She embarrassed him Mm -hmm. in front of everyone. And it was very evident that he did not like this. And as we know by now, mere hours later, Robert Chambers would be arrested and charged with the murder of Jennifer Levin. And before his bail hearing had even occurred, all manner of Catholic churchy, victim blamey, trashy tabloidy hijinks would ensue in the pre-OJ Simpson trial of of the century. And that's where we're going to put a pause on this story for today. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for tuning in to our very first episode. It has been a really long time coming in a difficult journey a a to battle. get here. There have been several people who have probably almost killed us. Shout out to our husbands and thank Sam you, Wilhelm. Sam. If you would like to listen to part two of this case where we are going to give you the conclusion and get fully into the trial, all of that good stuff, you can go listen to it in part two right now. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Camping is canceled. Dun dun.